We're in James again, of course, chapter 4. And we're going to read, starting at verse 11, all the way through the end of the chapter. So that's James 4, 11 through 17. All right. Before we get there, let's just re- let's, uh, review a little bit from last week. We talked about people being spiritual adulterers and adulteresses, cheating on God in some way by living, in their, living a life of sin, being enemies of God. That God's a jealous God. That if you're going to be His, He wants you to be His and His alone. That Christians are the bride of Christ. But right now we're only engaged to be the bride of Christ. And at the end there will be the wedding feast of the Lamb. And that's when you be married to the Lamb. And I'm reminded of the, the parable of the ten virgins where five of them made it, had enough oil in her lamp, and five of them didn't. We're sitting outside knocking. Knock, knock, let us in. And Jesus said, I don't know you. They gave up. They didn't have enough oil in their lamp to persevere until the end. We talked about temptation and how the first step in resisting temptation is what? Submit to God. Then resist the devil and he will flee from you. I was talking about drawing near to God, cleansing your hands, repentance. You have an obligation to cleanse your hands. And that you're, you're actually cleansed of your sins, not by your own works, but by the blood of Jesus cleansing you. But you must, in order to get that cleansing, you must do something. You must repent. You must forsake that way of living. Otherwise, you can't be cleansed. And we got a little bit last week about, uh, you know, different things during the sermon. Uh, like original sin and... Um, I'm glad we were able to talk to the brother afterwards. So, amen. All right, we also talked about prayer last week. Can someone give me what the four answers, the possible answers to prayer are? Daniel? No is one, okay. Jenna? Yes. Okay. Caitlin? Yes, no. Doria? Wait. Seth? Yes, no, and wait. What's the fourth one? Daniel? Not maybe. Jenna? I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Yeah, I can't hear you. Why can't God hear someone's prayers? They're in sin. That's right. So it's not a matter of whether God can physically hear. I mean, God doesn't really have physical ears. He's a spirit. But God does hear what they're saying, but He's not listening to them. He's not responding to them because they have sin in their life. And the only prayer God hears of a sinner is a repentant prayer. Because God is those who are broken in spirit and broken in heart. Those are the sacrifices of God. And God draws near to them. Yes? Uh, something I add to that. Uh, when you're in sin and you, you uh, pray to the Lord, uh-huh. that sin becomes an abomination. Right. You're in sin. Right. I just found out last week. Uh, about, hmm. That's an important thing to remember. Okay. To, test, to, to check to see if you're in the faith and right. not in sin. If you are to repent of it sure. before you start to pray, otherwise that prayer becomes an abomination before the Lord. That's a right. terrible thought. Right. But it says it in the scripture. And that's what Isaiah 54 6 is talking about. This is a verse that's quoted quite often in Christianity. Uh, even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags in his sight. It's not saying that everything righteous a person can do is filthy in God's sight. It's simply saying that when someone is living in sin, even the righteous thing to do, like prayer, mm-hmm. and back then giving sacrifices to God. Those were filthy in his sight because of it was tainted by their sin and their wickedness. 
Uh, so those things are, are like filthy rags, the Bible says. Yeah, it is very important. And we also talked about how these people, they, there were two reasons why James said they weren't getting prayers answered was because they weren't asking. And it's no wonder they weren't asking. They were living in sin. If you're living in sin you, and your conscience is in proper condition, you're not going to even want to go to God in prayer unless you're coming to Him in repentance. And secondly, because they act with the wrong motives. Act with the wrong motives. You shouldn't ask for things from God so you can spend it on your pleasure. I remember when I was a sinner and uh, I got in trouble. I said, God, just, just let me through this and, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll follow you. Now, of course, I was lying to him. I was lying to God when I said that. Just, just get me through this, God, and I'll follow you. And there'd be other times where I'd say, God, just, I, I'd pray a prayer that he'd help me sin. That God would help me do certain sins. Just, God, just, just do this for me, God. And those are wicked prayers to pray to God. Those are wrong motives. And uh, the first prayer I think God heard of mine was when I prayed a prayer of repentance. Amen. All right, let's read it starting in James 4, verse 11. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? Is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. All right, we have this first thing here, speaking evil of one another. Now, we've gone through quite a bit in this book about your tongue, have the power of life and death. That your tongue is like a small rudder on a large ship. That's like a small fire put in a large forest. Uh, you know, the, these, these things, your tongue can steer you. So this is talking about here, speaking evil of a brother, talking about gossiping about them or slandering them. And the word that's normally translated as slander... Uh, is the word here that's translated as speak evil. It's one word translated as speak evil here. It usually is translated as slander. So you don't slander your brother. You don't speak evil things about your brother or sister in Christ. You don't do that about them. Uh, because when you do so, you speak evil of your brother, and you judge your brother. You speak evil of law and judge the law. So let me just kind of give you a scenario to help you understand what we're saying here. Okay, we have the law of God. And let's just start with the, uh, the Ten Commandments here. And I'll give the Ten Commandment plaques here, just kind of a picture for you. We got one, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. Whose law is the Ten Commandments? God's law. This is the only thing that God wrote down with his own fingers is God's law. Now, God's law says, let's just get one of them. Let's say the third one. Don't take my name in vain. And I go around taking God's name in vain and tell people it's a good thing to do. I'm making my own law now and saying it's a good thing to do. Now what I've done, I've become a judge of the law. I'm saying this law right here, it's no good. This law is no good. And when God says, thou shalt not slander your brother, thou shalt not gossip about your brother, thou shalt love your neighbor as what? As yourself. When God says those things, then you don't do those things you're speaking evil of the law itself. Because you're saying, this law is no good. I'm not going to follow this law. And not only are you speaking evil of the law, 
you're speaking evil of the person who gave the law. How wicked is that? So, we're not to gossip and slander our brother. Let me just go back to the scriptures here for a second. Let's go to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, which is one book over. And we'll start in verse 1. See what Peter says about this. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all, dis all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. There it is again. Laying aside those things. Here's what we should do. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted the Lord is gracious. Now, what, now you guys have, have seen Eli from the moment he was born. He's, what does he desire more than anything else? Does he desire formula or the pure milk of his mother? That's right. And that's what we as Christians, whether we're new Christians or old Christians, this is not a reference to your maturity in Christ when it talks about babes here. This is in reference to what you should desire. Just, just use an example. It just says babies desire the pure milk of their mother above and beyond formula. And when they do desire that pure milk, guess what? They're healthier. Not just when they're babies, but it's been proven through stats they're healthier later on in life. So when you desire the pure milk of the Word of God, and he, once again, it's using an analogy here. It's not talking about you being a baby in Christ. It's saying at any, any point in time as a Christian, you should desire the pure milk of the Word of God. This is just like him desiring the pure milk of his mother. We shouldn't desire the formula of the world. We shouldn't desire the false teachings of the world. We shouldn't sit around and just listen to teachers all day and not read the word for ourselves and understand the word for ourselves and test what they say against the word of God and test the spirits and be Bereans. We should always test what people say against the word of God. It says, if indeed you have tasted, the Lord is gracious. Now once you've tasted of something as good, do you want to go back to something you had before that was fake? Let's use an example of moving to Kentucky. Now we all had milk before we moved to Kentucky, right? We all had milk. Now you've been to Kentucky. The first month or so in Kentucky, you had this milk, this new fresh milk here. Is there any comparison? Now, now once, after a while, after a year or so, or even now, you know, six, seven months later, you're getting used to this milk. And it may just become, you know, just normal now. It's not, not, it doesn't have this new sensation of being so great and so wonderful. But if you were to go back to the old stuff at the store, you would, it'd be filthy to you. It'd be disgusting to you. So if you've tasted the Lord is good, and you have the pure milk of the Word of God, don't go back to the garbage of the world. That's, you should never desire that ever again. So let's go back to James here. He do not speak evil of one another, brethren. So don't gossip, don't slander. Now, so let's look at one more verse that talks about slandering. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians right after Galatians, which is right after 2 Corinthians. All right. Chapter 4 and verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and here we go again, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. This is what you should do. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So you can grieve the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. Seal is not a seal that can't be broken in verse 30. It's actually a seal of ownership. Uh, but, it, it, but you can forsake God. You can grieve the Holy Spirit and grieve Him totally away. 
Why would he warn uh, them of this if it wasn't possible? Uh, but yeah, he can't, you're grieving the Holy Spirit away. Do not speak evil. About. So James is really hitting home hard, uh, hard home here that this tongue thing, once again. Because he said that the tongue, if you can control your tongue, you're what? A perfect man. If you can control your tongue, you can control your whole body. So yeah, the tongue's a very important thing to be able to control. Okay, so you speak evil of your brother and judge your brother. Now is this talking about judging in any sense here? Do Christians, according to the Bible, are they allowed to judge? They sure are. They sure are. One of the most quoted verses in Christianity, or, or in the open air, Matthew 7. Turn to Matthew 7 real quick. We'll just go through this real quick. I think we may have talked about this before in the, in the fellowship, but we'll just go through it real quick. Matthew chapter 7, and we'll start in verse 1 and go through verse 5. And one of the most quoted verses we hear from sinners in the open air is verse 1. And in fact, they'll misquote it. They'll say, Thou shalt not judge. Is that what verse 1 says? It says, Judge not that you be not judged. Now, let's try to quote the first two words. Judge not! Judge not! What does it say? That you be not judged. And then it goes on to explain what it's saying here. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. But the measure you use will be measured back to you. So if I go in the open air and say, fornicators are going to hell, drunkards are going to hell. Is that, is that okay if I'm not a drunkard or not a fornicator? It should be okay, right? Because that same measure I'm using on them will be measured back to me. If I'm not a drunkard or a fornicator, then it's not a big deal, is it? In fact, that's what I should be proclaiming. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? But do not consider the plank in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So we have this, this picture here of this guy. He's talking to his friend here. And uh, I know it's not a very good drawing here, but he's got this plank sticking out of his eye. And he's talking to his friend over here, who's got a little speck in his eye. And he's saying, hey man, hey man, you got a speck in your eye. Speck in eye. And this guy's saying, what are you talking about, man? You got a plank in your eye. I mean, if this guy has a plank in his eye, he'd probably be able to get too close to him, right? So if he has a plank in his eye, how can he even see close enough to see the speck in this guy's eye? He's going to end up bonking his friend in the head with this plank. And he's going to have stars, you know, above his head because he just got knocked out. And uh, because he can't, he can't even get close enough to see the speck. And the guy says, so Jesus is doing here is making the guy seem foolish. And what Jesus is dealing with here, you see in verse 5, hypocrisy. That's what he's dealing with here. Hypocrisy. Isn't it hypocritical to tell someone they have a speck in their eye when they have a big plank in their eye? That's hypocritical. You know, get, and Jesus says, get this out of your eye first, and then, then you can get close enough to your brother and say, hey man, you've got a speck in your eye. It's going to irritate your eye. It's going to affect your cornea. You know, so he's going to help the guy out. So the question is, if Jesus is saying, get a plank out of your own eye first, and then you can see clearly take the speck out of your brother's eye, is it possible, if Jesus is saying, get a plank out of your own eye, is it possible to get that plank out of your own eye? Sure. Yeah. 
Jesus doesn't command the impossible. Is that a repentance? Is that what That's what repentance is. That's right. This is referring to repentance. So once you turn from your sins, you get the plank out of your own eye. Now you can talk to the sinner and say, listen, man, you get the sin out of your life. But if you go to a sinner and you went out last night and got drunk, you tell the sinner, don't be a drunkard. You're going to go to hell, drunkard. Um, you have a plank in your own eye. Get it out of your eye. Then you can see clearly take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, he might, this guy might have a plank in his eye, too, for all we know. But the fact of the matter is, two planks, they're going to butt heads anyway. So, yeah, they're going to knock each other out. Might be a good thing for hypocrites to knock each other out, that they won't say much, make themselves look foolish. Uh, but Matthew 7, 1 through 5, is the passage, I would say, that clarifies what judging is. Now, in John 7, 24, Jesus said, judge with righteous judgment, not according to appearance. An example I always give in the open air is if I see a guy walking around with a pink shirt on. Now, pink is generally a feminine color, right? Generally. generally. If I see a guy walking around with a pink shirt like Hannah's on, and I say, well, that guy's got a pink shirt on, he must be a homosexual. What I just did, I judged according to appearance. I judged unrighteously. So what we have here is God's against two kinds of judgment. One is hypocritical judgment. And the other is unrighteous judgment, judgment according to appearance. But God's for righteous judgment. And uh, if someone reveals to me they're a drunkard or a fornicator, I'm going to tell them to stop being a drunkard or a fornicator. Or if filthy words come out of their mouth. Jesus said, out of the mouth comes the overflow of the heart. So if filthy words come out of their mouth, it shows the condition of their heart. They blaspheme God's name for the condition of their heart. So I, should, I can call them on it. I should call them on it, in fact. So that, this is what we're talking We're talking about judging him. This is not talking about judging the brother, period. It's talking about judging him unrighteously, evilly. You set up your own law. You set up your own law and say, these are, these are my rules. And you say, I'm going to judge my brother by these rules. And these rules go directly against God's rules. Now you've judged your brother wrongly. And that's the kind of judging James is talking about here. We should check each other. If, if John sees me doing something wicked, I expect him to check me on it. If he does, I'm going to be mad at him later on for it. If I, I see him doing something wrong, I'm going to check him on it. That's what brothers in Christ do. Iron sharpening iron. What is, Daniel, you use a sharpener down in the shed. What does it do to the, the thing you're sharpening? Sharpens it. So me and John want to be as sharp as possible. We're always sharpening each other. And it may hurt sometimes. A little piece may fall off every once in a while. So it may hurt, but it's needed. Because you want to be holy, as God is holy. That's what he commands us to be. So this person that James is talking about set up his own law, and in doing so judges his brother wickedly, he speaks evil of the law itself by saying, my law is more important than God's law. And then he judges the law, and therefore, in, in, the, in the process, judges the judger. I mean, me and John were arrested recently. Okay, Let's give a courtroom situation here. We were put in handcuffs recently. But let's imagine a different scenario. Now, me and John did nothing wrong that night. But let's imagine a different scenario. Me and John go to the open air in Louisville, and we decide we're going to have our own law tonight. I said, John, do you have any problems from Heckler? Just punch him in the face. And, and John said to me, well, Kerrigan, if you have any problems with Heckler, just pull your gun out and shoot him. I said, okay. And that's what we do. 
I mean, you put in handcuffs. You know, I put in handcuffs for punching someone, I get put in handcuffs for shooting somebody. Didn't kill them, but I shot them. And we stand before the judge. The judge has got his desk here, he's got his robe on, and he's getting ready to slam down the gavel and say, You're guilty. And I was not the best drawing in the world. All right, he's mad. He can really slam down the gavel and say, you're guilty, you're going to jail. You're guilty, you're going to jail. And I stand up and say, hold on a second, judge. I get there, knock him out of the way. So this is my courtroom. We're going to move on my rules. And my rules say it's okay to do what I did. I just put that judge out of his place where he belongs, took over his place, became the judge myself, and now I'm making my own law. Is that going to work in America? So why does someone think it's going to work with God? We can push the judge out of his place. Imagine this is God for a second here. This is God. We push God out of the way. Get out of the way, God. I'm going to make my own rules. I am the judge now. And I judge your law as wrong. My law rules. And I will be the judge, not only of my brother, but of you and your law. Now, we talked last week about, or maybe it was the week before, about how foolish atheists are to say anything is right or wrong in an absolute sense, right? Because in order to say anything's wrong in absolute sense, you must be omniscient, all-knowing, and everywhere at one time, omnipresent. Now, how can I, a human being who began at some point in time, I began a little over 31 years ago. My mother's womb probably about 32 years ago. I began, before then I didn't exist. And I'm going to come into the world and tell the judge, God, who's existed in eternity past, and say, your law is wrong, I'm right. See, these people that James are talking about, they're literally becoming atheists. They're literally saying, God, I'm going to be God. You're not going to be God. I'm going to be God over my brother. I'm going to be God over myself. I'm going to be God over you. Sounds like the president. Yeah. You know what it sounds like, though? Guess who said that in the beginning? Satan said, I will ascend the holy hill. I will be like the most high God. How foolish Satan must have been to try to dethrone the person who created him? But that's what people do. Every time they exalt themselves for God and make their own rules, make their own laws, judge God's laws being wrong, and speak evil of their brother. And therefore speak evil of the law and speak evil of the judge of the law. It's just foolish. And you can see from this natural example I gave with me and John going to the courtroom, uh, how if it seems foolish in a natural sense for us to do it to a human judge, how foolish it must seem to do it to the heavenly judge. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the one who always exists and always will exist. What was the same yesterday, today, and forever? How foolish it must be. But going back to that example of the atheist here, for me to say that he is wrong, I'm saying, to say anything's absolutely wrong, I have to have, in the beginning, God. So I'm saying, God, you're wrong, but in saying he's wrong, I'm saying he actually exists, so he can't be wrong. If that makes any sense to you, hopefully it does. All right. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. So God requires us to do what with the law? What does God require? Follow, that's right. To be a doer of the law. Not a judge of the law. Not to say, well, God, you know, I don't think it's right to tell me I can't lust. I don't think it's right, God, to tell me I can't lie and I can't steal. I don't think it's right, God, to tell me that I can't slander my brother. Your job is not to tell God what do you think is right or wrong. Your job is to obey God and His law, to be a doer 
of the law, not a judge of the law. There is one lawgiver, notice it's capitalized in your Bible there, lawgiver, who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Once again, not talking about judging, period, but judging unrighteously, as we look at the context there. And now he goes on this destroy thing. Now we're going to talk about death for a second. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy, sell, and make a profit. This thing of spending a year there, buy, sell, and make a profit, does God look like he's anywhere in the picture in that saying? See, these people, they're living. First of all, they said, well, God's law is wrong. I'll, do, I'll, I'll slander my brother. God's wrong. Now they're acting as if there's no God. Now they're acting as if they have the power of life and death in their own hands. If I said, I know for sure I'm going to live for 20 years, is that true? That's a lie. I don't know how. I could, this, think about, I mean, this last second, I could die right now and drop dead. That could happen. If it is a lesson first. <laughs> well, I'd like to, but, but God's, God's will be done. Lord willing, yeah. But these people are saying, I, I'm going to make the plans. I have control over my life. I'm going to decide what my, I do with my life. I'm going to go here and, and buy and sell and make a profit. And then go there and buy and sell and make a profit. God's not in the picture. They have control of their lives. They're God of their lives. The people who are God of their lives, what are they going to find out in the end? Who's God of their lives? They? God. God's God of their lives. And they'll find that out in the end. So he says, this is what they should say, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Who has the power of life and death? God. That's right. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Let's look at Psalm 39. I oftentimes will start out an open-air preaching session with that verse we just read. But I'll also start out sometimes with this verse in Psalm 39 and verse 4. David the psalmist is speaking here. Psalm 39 and verse 4 says this, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days, that I may know how frail I am, Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly, every man has his best state is but a vapor. Make me to know my end, and what is the measure of my... So David is literally saying here, put eternity in my mind. Help me understand that today could, every day could be my last day. Or like Leonard Ravenhill said, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Stamp it. We don't live for the here and now. We live for eternity. Turn to Matthew 6. Matthew 6 and verse 19. See what the Lord Jesus had to say about this. The Lord Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Now Jesus isn't, isn't propagating or pushing this idea of being, try to be covetous for heavenly goods. Jesus isn't promoting covetousness here. Because to, to, to do things on earth just to get treasures in heaven, that's, that's wickedness. That's covetous. 
He's simply getting your mindset right. Because look what it says in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So your heart should be fixed on heavenly things, eternal things, not earthly things, that are temporal and aren't going to matter that moth and rust are going to destroy. I've said this before. I've never seen one time where I've been to a funeral with a U-Haul pulled behind it. And that person takes their treasures with them. I've heard about Egyptian pharaohs who bury tons and tons of gold with them. It's still there. It's still there. They didn't take it to hell with them. And if they went to heaven, they didn't take it to heaven with them. It's still there in their tomb. But it shows you where their heart is, doesn't it? Where's their heart? On earthly things. On gold. On things that moth and rust will eventually destroy. Let me just read to you some things from this book. You probably wonder why I brought this book with me today. This is called The School of Biblical Evangelism Book. Pretty good. Pretty good book. Doesn't have perfect doctrine in it. But uh, Good Evangelism Lessons by Ray Comfort. And uh, in this book, one thing I remember really vividly from this book, from reading this book, at the end of every lesson, he gives last words of somebody before they die. The last words of somebody. Now, what we've been reading is that the fact is you might not have last words. You could die before you get those last words out. But most people, even if they die surprisingly and suddenly, they do get some kind of last words out. And their last words will tell you a lot about their life. Let me read you about four different ones here. Tony Hancock, he was a British comedian. He said, Nobody will ever know I existed. No, nothing to leave behind me, nothing to pass on. Nobody to mourn me. That's the bitterest blow of all. Some pretty sad last words. Now from his words here, what was his focus in life? Was it on God? Nothing. It was on Him. It's all about me. No one will ever know I existed. No, nothing to leave behind me. Nothing to pass on from me. Nobody to mourn me. That's the bitterest blow of all. If your whole life was focused on you, 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 that is a bitter blow. That's a bitter blow to leave behind for that to happen. Let's read another one. Always oh, real interesting here. The Duke of, of Buckingham, a professed atheist, confessed as he died, I sported with the holy name of heaven. Now I am haunted by remorse, and I fear forsaken by God. That's heavy. Forsaken by God. Tells me his conscience was still intact. Tells me he didn't sear his conscience to the fact where he was cursing God until he died. He cursed God's name all his life. He played around with God's holy name. And now he regrets it. Don't live a life of regret. That's why you should live every day as if it's your last day. Because if you live every day as if it's your last day, you won't live a life of regret. You know you did what God wanted you to do. Philip III, King of France. What an account I shall have to give to God. But I should like to live otherwise than I have lived. More regret. He wished he could go back in time and live it all over again because he knew he didn't live for God like he should have. And then one more here. Captain John Lee, who was executed for forgery, sought to do away with God, yet in death longed for the assurance and hope of faith. I leave to this world this mournful memento. That however much man may be favored by personal qualifications or distinguished mental endowments, genius will be useless and abilities avail little unless accompanied by religion and attended by virtue. 
all that I had possession of the meanest place in heaven and could but creep into one corner of it. So we need to make sure we're living our lives our last day and not go through our life as if we're the God of our life, but have our focus on what is really important, treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. Because where your treasure, your heart will be also. So our life is a vapor. appears for a little time and vanishes away. Verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. not literally saying that every time you say something, you should say, if the Lord wills. But it's saying in your heart. It's showing a heart of submission to God. God, what you want is what I want. It doesn't, it's not saying here that you shouldn't make plans for the future with wisdom and with the guidance that God gives you and discernment God gives you. It's simply saying that you should be open to God changing those things. Your heart is in submission to God and say, God, you know, whatever you want. If you want to change these plans, God, I'm open to it. If you show me I'm wrong, I'm going to change. It's not saying I'm going to do what I want to do. You're out of the picture, God. I'm going to be the God of my life. Man makes many plans in his heart, but in the end, God will have his will. Yeah, that's a paraphrase there. That's what the gist of it is, though. Yeah, it's true. It is true. It doesn't mean that everything a person does wrong. So some Calvinists say that and say, well, that means everything you do is God's will. No, no. God will have his way in the end. Is what it's saying. You won't follow him, there's consequences for it. If you will follow him, there's obviously rewards for it. Then it says, but now you boast in arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now what are they boasting about? Boasting about first, that their law is above God's law. Secondly, God is wrong. Thirdly, I'm going to slander my brother, it doesn't matter. Fourthly, I'm going to go and live my life the way I want to without God being in the picture. That kind of boasting is arrogant and it's wicked and it's evil. It is. And it really reminds me of the atheists I hear today, living in this day and age, who debate Christians about whether God exists, and you hear their boasting, it's just wicked. I mean, some of them claim to be ex-Christians, and I really fear for those ones the most. Verse 17. Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it to him, it is sin. Now this verse, some people will say it's saying, and I, I used to say this myself, that this is talking about doing good things only. No. But if you know that lying is wrong, and you choose to not lie, is that a good thing you've chosen to do? Yeah. That's good. So if you know lying is wrong, and you don't do it, then, or if you do do it, that is sin. If you don't do it, then it is not sin. But this, this is, once again, we talked about this before, this is the principle of you're judged according to your knowledge and your understanding. That's the way God judges. Let's look at some verses here. Luke 12, verse 47. <clears throat> and that servant who knew, he knew, he had knowledge now, knew his master's will, and did not prepare himself, or do according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. 
and to whom much has been committed of, whom, of him, they shall ask the more. So we talked about this before, we talking about teachers. Not many should be teachers. Why? Teachers will have more knowledge, they're actually teaching people to have the same knowledge they have. So they be careful what they're teaching, careful what they know. John chapter 9, and verse 41. That's what we'll start in verse 39. John 9, 39. <clears throat> and Jesus said, For judgment I have come into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? This, listen to what Jesus said to them. If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. So knowledge, seeing, understanding. And those who do know and aren't obeying, according to verse 39, shall be made blind. And be given over to their... They're, they're turning a blind then anyway. It's like someone saying, but God's word says thou shalt not lie. Eh, I'm going to lie anyway. It's like you're blind. You're not seeing it. You're, you're choosing not to see it. So I guess, okay, be blind if you want to. But your sin will remain. Your sin will remain, because we know you really do see it. Let's turn to John 15. In verse 22. Jesus says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their, for their sin. He who hates me hates my father. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. Yeah, so we're talking about knowledge, understanding, and you're judged according to that, accordingly, uh, according to God's word. So God's not an unrighteous judge, not an impartial, not an impartial judge. He's a... He's a he doesn't play favorites. He judges according to your knowledge, your understanding, and your ability. That's why we, we believe that babies won't go to hell, children won't go to hell, toddlers won't go to hell, because they have no understanding of these things until they come to the age of accountability. All right. Does anyone have any questions? I talked to John Esch, and I asked him, I said, he's lost his son at 23. Mm. I said, John, do you think when a child, before it becomes a accountability, Mm -hmm. right from home. Uh, do you think they, he goes to, to heaven? He says, I really don't know about that. Hmm. I said, well, what did David say? About his own son? Yeah. That's not, that's not, uh, it's kind of like he, he wasn't sure that that would signify that all babies would go to heaven. Sure. And I said, John, why would David say that if, if it were not true that, that he was going to go see the child? Right. The child couldn't come to him. How are you going to go to his child unless and, and David going to go to heaven? Why would not the child be there? How could not the child not be there if he's going to see him? Right. He won't see him in hell. Right. So yep. I, I was I was bewildered by, by yeah. his answer. He's a, he's a minister. Right. Yeah, for those to say that David, obviously David is only speaking of his child. But for them to say from that that it's limited to just this child. Tells me that they're saying that there's some reason why that child went to heaven, but other children won't. So now God's a respecter of persons. God's playing favorites. Because 
Children have, I mean, these babies have no ability to repent and trust in Jesus or become born again. So for God to take this person, this baby, and not take this baby, it, it just doesn't make any sense. You have to become a Calvinist to, to believe that. Um, right, but he's, he's being inconsistent. But Jesus, Jesus said, uh, do not uh, suffer the children to come to me, for such is of the kingdom of heaven. Unless you humble yourself and become like a child, you should by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, so he, the Bible, innocent. In other words, he's saying right. become innocent. Right, right, yeah. He, and if, if God, Jesus holds up children as a as a model, not something to look down, not as wicked or sinners. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's definitely a point in time where children become sinners. The Bible always says it's from their youth. Now, youth is a very uh, general term, mm-hmm. but in Jewish history, it's always meant the bar mitzvah. Which, which for, for girls is 12 and for boys is 13. And, and the word by misva uh, literally means one who's accountable to the law or something like that. I can't remember. It's, it's something like that. Not exactly that, but one who's accountable to the law. That's what bar mitzvah means. So they believed that if you weren't there yet, by 12 for girls, by 13 for boys, that you were there. That's what Jewish... I mean, that's not something that says in the scripture. That's what Jews believe. That's a tradition from what they didacted from the scriptures. Well, my understanding, when Jesus told them about that child, he was actually rebuking them because he said the Father has angels. For each one, yeah. Right. For each one of these right. children. Right. And he was, in, in those days, my understanding from history was that they didn't believe, they thought nothing of a child because most of them died anyways. Mm-hmm. Biggest percentage of them. Until they got to that point of 13 or 14 or whatever. Right. Was they didn't even consider him a human being. Hmm. I didn't know about that. That was history. That right. Was history. Yeah, I just have a question I'd like to bring forth. I don't know what the answers are. You were saying that this um, accountable to, to knowledge in the last verse there, and uh, from that knowledge, so people that have never heard the gospel, never heard the Africa or wherever, they never heard, they never read a Bible, they never heard the gospel preached. So those people get, uh, they're not going to be judged and going to go to heaven? Oh no, they're, gonna, they're not going to go to heaven. They're going to be judged according to their knowledge. They're not judged for rejecting the gospel. They're not judged for rejecting Jesus. They're never judged for all the truths that's found in the Bible. They're judged for their natural knowledge, which Romans 1 talks about. About knowing, their, about having natural knowledge about a creator. Let me just read that scripture to you real quick. Romans chapter 1. So you can hear it straight from the Word of God. We'll start in verse 18. Romans 1, 18. And it says this. <clears throat> For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven <clears throat> against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So right from the beginning we know that all men have some kind of truth they're suppressing if they're not following Jesus. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. <clears throat> because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, 
nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, and lust their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So, these people have put aside the truth they know about God, and they do have this truth. Every person does. And, yeah, everyone has a certain amount of life. And we read later on in Romans 2 that the Gentiles, who did not have the law, had a conscience. And by nature, due to things in the law at times. That's actually Romans chapter 2 and verse 9, uh, 14. We won't read that. So they have this truth, and what are they doing with this truth? They're suppressing it. In what? In unrighteousness. In other words, they love their sin, they don't want God. And what do they worship and serve instead? The creature, rather than the creator. Now the creature could be themselves, could be a certain possession in life, a certain thing in life. But they're worshiping and serving things instead of Him, the God. The only true God. So, Every person has this amount of light. Has understanding of God. They can look in creation. Look, God must be a creative God. The Bible says you have eternity written in your heart. You have a sense of morality or justice within you from, the, from your conscience. And if someone will obey that light that they have, God will reveal more truth in them. Because does God want everyone to be saved? And for no one to perish? Is God saving someone? Is he restricted to a Christian? Is he restricted? When he wants to say someone, does he have to do it through another Christian telling him the truth? Does he have to? Does that person have to read it in the Bible? They have to re, do they have to read it in a gospel track in order to be saved? No. You got angels. You got dreams. You got visions. The Holy Spirit convicts them of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and they have this natural light. So God isn't restricted as far as saving a person's soul. Like let's take someone for example in Africa. That's the typical continent people use, in the deep, dark jungles of Africa, that's what we usually hear, who've never heard of the Bible, never heard of Jesus, never heard of the Word of God, and they're obeying their conscience to the best of their ability, and they're, they're trying to serve and follow the Creator God to the best of their knowledge, what do you think God will do with that person? What's that? Bring them more truth. Yeah, bring them to the truth, but He'll reveal truth to them. And He'll see if they want to obey it or not. If they obey it, He'll give them more truth. And eventually, if they continue on that course of wanting to obey God and follow Him, He's going to reveal the full truth to them, and they'll become Christians. And then they'll seek out, and God will give them a Bible somehow. And give them, you know. yeah. So, even without a missionary going to Africa, without a Bible going to Africa, without a gospel track, without an open-air preacher going to Africa, God can save a sinner. If they'll seek to know Him and serve Him and follow Him. And we, there's lot, I've read lots of stories about these situations. There's a one guy whose name is his name is actually Sub Romanian. That's his name. And I read this, and um, it's one of book, one of book by Ravi Zacharias called uh, "Birth or Rebirth." It's a hypothetical conversation between Jesus and Hare Krishna. And one of the one of the onlookers of this this uh, hypothetical conversation is this guy named Sub Romanian, who was raised as a basically Hindu, and um, his family had a Hindu priesthood in the past, and he was on this path to becoming that as well. But he became dissatisfied and knew that what he was believing wasn't the truth. Naturally. Naturally knew it wasn't the truth. So he started seeking the truth. He went to a swami in a cave. He took a vow of silence. The swami wouldn't talk to him. 
He would write notes to Swami, the Swami wouldn't write anything back. And one day he came, because he's trying to get truth from the Swami. Swami would be an all-wise man. He sits in meditation all day, in silence all day. He must be wise. But he got nothing from the Swami. And uh, the Swami eventually left, and he came to the cave one day, and the Swami was gone. Swami didn't want to deal with the guy anymore. He wanted silence. And uh, when he came back to that cave, he heard a still small voice saying, follow me. And he knew it was the truth. He just knew it was the truth, what he was looking for all along. And he ended up coming down this path and finding Christ, and later on found a Christian missionary who revealed more truth to him. So God, God is able and willing to do these things if a person will seek after the truth. If you seek him with all your heart, you shall find him, the Bible says. So, good question. Any other questions? All right.